Um, thank you, everybody. Uh, I'm actually going... I'm, I'm focusing my talk around the opposition of Conservative supporters, allies and MPs at the time of the first application to join what was then called the EEC, the European Economic Community or the Common Market, uh, in, 1960, in 1961. Um, I, I will be, again, focusing quite uh, around the point of view of the leaders of the party. Now, there are a number of ways we can approach opposition, but our, my, my focus is, is this quite limited one because for several reasons, one of which is that other people have written about this, but number two, I feel that I can offer something interesting to say in the way that I focus this, uh, this presentation. Now, uh, to start off, a little bit of background, and I think that's important. Uh, the Conservatives won the 1959 general election, the third in a row since 1951, and had a large 100-seat majority in the House of Commons. Um, but the government found that they were very unpopular within a year and a half of the election. Um, from their point of view, they, they believe that this was largely due to the unhappiness of the state of the economy since that election. The Chancellor of the Exchequer, Selwyn Lloyd, had been forced to put the brakes on an overheated economy which resulted in a pay pause, the stop-go cycle and the prospect of interest rates in increases. Conservative managers, and by that I mean to say leading conservatives, but also people at, uh, uh, in, in, the, uh, in, in conservative central office, party chairman and others, uh, decided that the July 1961 bid to join the EEC or the, uh, should be the centrepiece of the party strategy to win the forthcoming general election, which they would knew would, would happen at least uh, no later than some, uh, no later than 64. It was presented, quote, as a clarion call to the nation, a call to self-reliance, to new endeavour, to fresh resolve. The policy was meant to be forward-looking and as part of the government's modernisation programme. Party managers and strategists knew that this turn towards Europe accorded with, a view, with the views of a cross-section of elite opinion in Britain, which had come round to the view in, in 1959-60 that the UK participation in the EEC was, on balance, desirable, principally for economic reasons. The most obvious example of this was Lord Gladwin's campaign for the common market, which has sought to impress upon the government the need to come to an accommodation with the EEC. There were many parts of the, of the Conservative Party that were pro-Europeanist, and they had been disappointed that the government had not taken more interest in the foundation of the EEC. Now, Professor Gamble has already mentioned uh, Edward Heath, and he, of course, was one of the foremost of these. It was he, as uh, Lord Privy Seal, who would be involved in the negotiations with the sixth, the sixth, or who, by that I mean the, the EEC, uh, between 1961 and 1963 and who would later successfully take the UK into the, into the EEC when he became Prime Minister in 1970. These pro-Europeanists were favourably disposed for the common market for many reasons, some, many of which uh, have already been pointed out by Professor Gamble, but I, would, I, would also, I, I, I think all of them would agree that the main reasons were economic. They were all agreed that the old, quote, the old patterns of trade with the Commonwealth were breaking down and exploitation of the European market was necessary to maintain Britain's future economic prosperity. 
Conservative policymakers policy also knew that there were some in the broader party who would approve of the move towards Europe because with decolonization firmly underway, they felt that the party needed something to replace empire and commonwealth as the central tenets of conservatism. The Conservatives' National, Union, National Union's General Purposes Committee, when it debated the application, concluded that, quote, the, natu the, natu the natural destiny of this country lies in Europe. Policymakers also knew that the application would be in line with influential official opinion, like, for instance, the Bank of England. The bank had been closely monitoring developments leading towards in integration and felt that many economic and financial problems facing the country, such as, chronic such as the chronic balance and payments deficit, and exchange rate, exchange rate crises could thus be relieved. Conservative policymakers learned that some firms in the City of London, such as Lazard, had thought that the arguments for UK membership were overwhelming. They also learned that it was commonly regarded in the city that membership of the common market inevitable and was something on which the government would soon, sooner or later have made up its mind. These are all quotes, by the way. However, elite opinion was neither unanimous nor unequivocal in favour of British entry. Even in the city of London, there wasn't a city view. The Federation of British Industries, or the FBI, this is obviously not the American FBI, issued a statement on this matter which suggested that they thought the government should have considered more thoroughly the impact of entry on important domestic sectors such as agriculture and on trading partners in the European Free Trade Area, or EFTA, and the Commonwealth. The FBI was right to point out such problems. The impact of participation in the EEC was likely to vary significantly from sector to sector and from firm to firm. Firms that largely traded with, with the Commonwealth in EFTA and EFTA nations feared that they would be badly disadvantaged by the entry. The National Farmers Union, traditionally a strongly pro-conservative lobby, was to be openly hostile to government policy because they feared British agriculture would lose out as the price subsidy system would be dismantled if they were to take place. Now, very briefly, the price subsidy system, British agriculture has always received subsidies from the government for a very long time, and they feared that if they joined the EEC, CAP wouldn't necessarily help them out in the way they thought. Uh, there's a very good PhD on this, and if you want to know more, but I, I want to, uh, you know, I'll leave it at that. Uh, in the question of agriculture was to be one of the central issues around which, uh, around which organised conservative opinion was to gather. In the, cab in the cabinet, the Home Secretary, Rab Butler, was apprehensive because he represented Saffron Walden, a largely agricultural seat in Essex. In his diary, he observed that, quote, the simpler down-to-earth farmers are all against it. And he, of course, was deeply concerned about losing their solid, uh, hitherto solid electoral support. Butler overcame, this was his words, his anxieties after being assured by the Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, that agriculture would not lose out if Britain were to join. But he warned Macmillan that the government might share the fate of Sir Robert Peel and his supporters referring, to, the, uh, referring to, the, um, to what happened to the Conservative lead in the mid-19th century following the, the repeal of the Corn Laws, i.e. he was out of office, and his, as were his supporters. Butler's warnings were not out of place. Soon after the government announced its decision to apply for membership, the Anti-Common Market League was, was established. 
I'll be referring to the Anti-Common Market League as the ACML. Between 1961 and uh, mid-1961 and January 1962, uh, 1963, the, uh, the, which is the period under uh, uh, which I'm looking at in, in detail, the ACML was to conduct an organised, vigorous and vicious campaign against government policy. Just uh, as an aside, the Anti-Common Market League did not disband and was a force well into the 1970s once the application was rejected in 1963. The Anti-Common Market League was to, uh, was to prove uh, to be a formidable and well-funded adversary and, was matched, and it was to match the, vo the volume of literature produced by the official Conservative Party in favour of entry. Not only was the ACML to receive support from agricultural interests, but also from those who were hostile to the government's decolonisation policy, particularly in Africa. The Monday Club, which had formed in 1960 to protest and oppose the policy implications of Macmillan's famous Winds of Change speech in, this, uh, to the South, in South African Parliament, was known to promote the ACML. Consequently, the ACML posed a danger to the government for two important reasons. The first was that it, believed, it was believed by some party leaders that the supporters of the Conservative benches in the Commons were potentially numerous, precisely how numerous they did not know. This could threaten the government's majority, and since the Labour Party had come out against the EEC application, the government could be brought down if the two, that is to say, the anti-marketeer Conservative MPs and Labour, were to join forces and to act together. During debates in the House of Commons, uh, anti-marketeers were much feared, but in all events, there were actually very few votes against the government. The second reason they were concerned was the message of the Anti-Common Market League was potentially attractive to a cross-section of Conservative Party voters, or so they felt. Party managers thought that, that they had lost the, Dorsets, the South Dorset by-election in November 1962, because the ACML had, been, had worked against them. Uh, Nick Croson has, has looked at this in more detail, and he's argued that the situation is actually quite a bit more complex. But it, it's nevertheless worth emphasizing that the party leaders believe how dangerous the ACML was. So who were these supporters of the Anti-Common Market League? The Conservative Central Office uh, concluded that many belonged to extreme right-wing groups who uh, such as the already mentioned Monday Club, but there were also groups such as the Forward Britain Movement, the League of Empire Loyalist, and the Patriotic Front. Groups like this had been disruptive to the party at the constituency level from the mid-1950s onwards. They were angry at a variety of things, but they were certainly angry the conservative that the Conservative government was decolonising. Uh, as you can imagine from their name, the League of Empire Loyalists was, uh, was, uh, was extremely troublesome from, 50, uh, from 55 to 57, uh, and they had challenged the party at by-elections, notably the Lewis Chemise by-election <coughs> in 1957. Other allies of the ACML were, were a variety of disparate groups like the Commonwealth Industries Association and the Council for the Reduction of Taxation. According to one agent, as you know, all these Ottomans are against the common market and blame the whole business on a gang of international financiers. The Conservative managers, not surprisingly, were greatly alarmed by the positive responses anti-EEC anti forces were getting. Reports they received from constituencies revealed that many of the large number of meetings that the ACML were busy organising were, were worryingly crowded and enthusiastic. 
At such meetings, government policy was pilloried by speakers, many of whom were backbench Conservative MPs. At one such meeting at Tunbridge Wells, the principal speaker, the MP Anthony Fell, urged all those gathered not to vote for their sitting MP as he had declared himself in favour of the EEC. Fell also told, that, uh, also told the meeting that, quote, Macmillan was an old fool, quite useless in selling the party down the river. The Conservative Party chairman, Ian MacLeod, suggested to the chief whip, Martin Redmayne, that disciplinary action should be taken against Anthony Fell, which in this case meant the withdrawal of the whip. Uh, Redmayne was more cautious. He decided that taking action might in fact make the situation worse. This is because Fell, who was described as an unscrupulous person, would betray himself as a victim. And this would be attractive to those Conservative voters who felt that they had a grievance against the government. Some Conservative local constituencies officially uh, registered their opposition to the EEC uh, application. Um, and there's quite a lot of uh, interesting traffic in the Conservative Party archives from, uh, from constituencies. Um, a Suffolk constituency reported that they were opposed to the common market because it was a popish plot. And I'm glad that Professor Gamble has mentioned that tension between Catholics and Protestants, because this is also something you can sometimes see beneath the tension in some of the debates at the constituency level. This, this very great concern about Europe, or many European countries, being too Catholic. Such sentiments were also uh, were, were reflected in other constituencies in East Anglia and the southwest of England. I, I sort of spent a little bit of time in these two areas because of their, uh, because of their historic uh, sort of roots and their hostility to Catholicism. Um, the, the Truro Division informed the Central Office uh, that, in their opinion, such a moves, such a moves that means they the, 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 to join the EEC transcends party divisions and should be decided by a referendum. It is feared that it would, be, it would affect the sovereignty of the nation and the Commonwealth. This is a quote. As time went on, the views of many Conservative voters turned more hostile and more susceptible to groups like the ACML. This was something that was painfully clear to party managers. In mid-1962, uh, uh, Ian MacLeod circulated a memorandum entitled, Conservative, uh, cons uh, entitled Public Opinion and the Common Market to all members of the Cabinet and other senior party leaders. Uh, and he also circulated the Cabinet Secretary, which I think was quite unusual at the time. The memorandum drew data gathered from local constituency agents in England and Wales, and the reason England and Wales, the Scottish Conservative Party was separate, and combined these using the opinion polls conducted by Gallup and the National Opinion Poll, the NOP. McLeod reported that across the country, support for joining the common market had peaked in December 1961, but that had then begun to fall. The NOP survey in particular found something disturbing. If undecided voters, particularly conservative undecided voters, were pressed to accept an inclination, they were overwhelmingly anti-market. The memorandum warned that if this trend continues, the position could become serious. According to McLeod's memorandum, conservative, conservative agents found that supporters were bewildered by the complexities and uncertainties of the issues. For better or worse, according to the, according to the memorandum, generally where the MP has made up his mind, he has usually been followed by his supporters. 
That is to say, those MPs who are either vocally a pro or anti-common market carry their constituents with, along with them. As a result of the protracted, protracted negotiations between the government and the EEC, remember these went on from 1961 to 1963, there were general complaints about the lack of information about the whole, applic whole application process, about the delays of the negotiations, uncertainties, and lack of detailed terms. The report concluded it is probably fair to interpret these complaints as a demand for, clear, for a clear lead, preferably from their own MP. McLeod's memorandum found that all surveys showed that age and class were profoundly important. Quote, the young are in favour of joining, the middle-aged and elderly against. This was a recurrent theme in agents' reports and was borne out by the findings of the National Opinion Poll, which showed, a, uh, quote, a majority in favour of joining in all age groups under 45 and a majority against over 45. According to both the agents' finding and opinion polls, upper working class, lower middle class and professionals were on balance in favour, while manual workers, both skilled and unskilled, are opposed. Conservative agents, however, found an interesting exception in the medical profession who feared the, the, the lowering of professional standards if we were to join. This is a quote. <clears throat> Memorand, um, the McLeod's memorandum further went on. Um, by, by far the main reason for opposition, both amongst the working class and amongst those uh, members of the middle class who are opposed, is a sort of patriotism or its negative counterpart, xenophobia, which extends both to our own sovereignty and our links with the Commonwealth. The agents had reported that since the start of the EEC, nego uh, the of the EEC negotiations, there was an increasing distrust of foreign political connections and indeed of foreigners. Um, agents reported that conservatives were uh, 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 Agents reported the Conservatives who were against the EEC feared being, quote, taken over, pushed around, outvoted, forced in the common market to serve American interest, or finally, and I, I always like this particular quote, surrender our independence to frogs and wogs. Additionally, and more importantly, the report suggested that such emotional attitudes were trumped by more thoughtful anxieties about the extent to which British sovereignty uh, thoughtful anxieties about the extent to which Britain's British sovereignty, its traditional institutions and forms of government would be eroded. Quote, fear of losing sovereignty is often, in, in, uh, is often linked ingenuously to the person of the Queen and appears relatively frequently. The agents also reported there was a real concern about the, what was called the Commonwealth issue. The government is, is criti was criticised for making for making not, not making clear enough exactly what was going to happen to the Commonwealth and its relations with the UK. And there was great worry that there was be an abandonment. Now, what was interesting is they found that what people talked about, when they were talking about the Commonwealth, they were talking about the old Commonwealth, meaning to say the white Commonwealth, not countries like India and Pakistan and the new Commonwealth. This issue of sovereignty was picked up in virtually all reports that from, from the agents and elsewhere. I just uh, would like to sort of talk about one. One of these came from the deputy area of the London, of, from in London, who pointed out that the issue of, uh, of sovereignty was bundled up with other concerns, such as, quote, that our way of life may be disrupted, 
that ultimately political unity will follow, that decisions affecting this country will be taken not by the Houses of Parliament, but by a European government. Conservative headquarters attempted to remedy the situation by assuring the electorate that joining the EEC would not be to their disadvantage. Farmers were told that they, their interests would, would not be forgotten uh, in negotiations with the EEC. Young conservatives who were identified as to be most likely to favor EEC entry were informed that the government had embarked upon their policy because, quote, the need of the hour is for the closest possible links, social and political, with our European partners in Western defense. To help educate the electorates on the benefits of joining, the, uh, of joining Conservative Central Office was to provide unofficial assistance to the United Kingdom Council for the European, for, uh, of the European movement by helping them with publicity and with cost. Conservative leaders were troubled by the opposition they encountered. Party Chairman Ian MacLeod uh, told, the Prime, told Prime Minister Macmillan that, the that there is, quote, a real danger that the latent xenophobia and jingoism in parts of the parliamentary party and the constituencies will rise to the surface. This might rally our confirmed supporters for a time, but would be damaging over a far wider field and should be firmly discouraged. Some party leaders, like Rab Butler, were sympathetic to those who wanted to maintain close links with the Commonwealth. In his diary of 10th of January 1963, Butler mused, the great question remains, what is the alternative to the, to the European community? If we are to be honest, there is none. Had there been a chance of a Commonwealth, a Commonwealth free trade area, for instance, we should have grasped this a long time ago. Many Conservative leaders saw the opposition of their supporters and allies to the first British application to join as a kind of middle-class revolt, a middle-class that was unhappy with their state in the mid-1950s onwards. They were unhappy with trade unions. They were also unhappy with, Britain's, with the shifts in Britain's international position, particularly with, regarding, with regards to the empire. And they were very irritated that the actions of the Conservative government were going against what they believed to be instinctively their own. Conservative leaders uh, thought that the, this is what lay behind the liberal revival in the early 1960s, particularly with, noticeable with the liberal win in, 90, in Orpington in 1962. Uh, a quote from the past chairman, the liberal candidates continue to do better than they deserve. This is largely due to Pujitism, which is in pres at present infecting the ordinary conservative voter, which exposes itself in many ways in a vote cast for the Liberals in order to express their disapproval for conservative policy. Pujitism, incidentally, refers to the problems in France. In Puja, who was a sort of was a was a, was a, was a leader, was a, a peer. Puja was a leader in France who organised middle classes against a whole variety of things. What was ironic about this protest was that, of course, the Liberals were a pro-European party. Uh, but it was nevertheless interesting to note the extent, you know, what conservative voters, uh, conservative voters would be willing to do to press their displeasure. Uh, as also as Mac Macmillan observed at the time of the Orpington by-election, the middle classes, the Orpingtonians, feel that they were victims of the system and of the circumstances. I'm now drawing to a close because I think I, this is my end of time. Uh, some commentators, including contributors to the History and Policy website, have drawn links between post-imperial nostalgia and Brexit. 
uh, as you can see from my presentation, I don't necessarily entirely disagree. But what, what I would suggest is that, of course, really things were more complex then, as indeed they're more complex now. And we need to actually understand more what we're talking about when we're talking about things like identity politics and so forth. And finally, I think one of the things which I'd like to suggest we need to keep in mind is the fragility of party politics in Britain, which was true even in the 1960s, when people assumed that the, party the two party political system and politics was generally quite strong and solid. That's not necessarily the way uh, party leaders saw this. Actually, felt much, much more vulnerable. And I think this is something which we may want to talk about in the discussion afterwards. Thank you.